episode 26, or, as McGregor would undoubtedly call it, the penultimate episode of The Tar Sands Diplomat. As we record this, the Canada-Europe CETA trade deal also seems to be approaching its finale. We'll see if they can get it to the finish line without McGregor and LaFranc in Brussels. And now, here's Keith, looking pale after 26 episodes in the podcast cave, reading the next episode of The Tar Sands Diplomat. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 32, Alone. Kennedy rustled in the bathroom doorway behind me. I hoped she was changing, but couldn't help worrying that she was about to bash my brains out with a five iron. I tried to think through the situation. How long had Kennedy and Culloden been together? Was this a one-night stand after some improbable magic had passed between them when Kennedy and Mashinsky had met Culloden at the dingy pizzeria? Or had they been together since the beginning? I thought back to the blonde jogger we'd seen coming out of Culloden's flat one morning and how the stagiaire had said Kennedy didn't react to Culloden's foot massaging her calf in the pizzeria. Did Beto and Kravinsky know? Of course not, I thought. They never would have let Kennedy anywhere near the file if they knew she was sleeping with the head of the Green Alliance. Had Julian known? I felt a tightening in the pit of my stomach. What would happen when Culloden got back? I tried to construct a scenario where he and Kennedy sent us on our way after telling us to mind our own business. I couldn't think of one. Kennedy reappeared beside me. A plastic bag she was holding brushed against my shoulder. I had a sudden rush of adrenaline as I pictured her popping the bag over my head to quietly finish me off. Is LaFranc okay, she asked. I didn't hit him that hard. I looked over. He was sleeping heavily, drooling as he did so. She put down the plastic bag, picked up her Gatorade, and walked around and stood in front of me. What are you doing here, anyway? This was a tricky question. I couldn't tell her everything we knew, and I had to keep Violet out of it, but I had to tell her something. We thought the Green Alliance might be involved in killing Julian. We'd been following Culloden and thought we would find something in his room while he was jogging, I said. But it's obvious, McGregor. Julian was killed by that Russian prostitute, said Kennedy. Why did everyone automatically assume the Russian prostitute story was true? There is no Russian prostitute, I said. The red hair in Julian's bed is from his French girlfriend and Sherlock's report said Julian's fingerprints weren't on those porn magazines. Sherlock didn't even realize what he was writing. Julian didn't buy those magazines. Someone else faked that. Kennedy's face hardened. I realized I'd given too much away. I watched as she thought through the situation, idly swirling her Gatorade in the bottle as she did so. I hoped the jet lag pills were dissolving invisibly in the orange fluid. So you've been pretending to be a private investigator the whole time, she asked, following Ian. Who else did you see him with? This was getting dangerous, I thought. Loads of people, I said. He has an amazing network. I listed the people I'd seen him with in the Hotel de l'Imperatrice, being careful not to say Mashinsky's name. She looked at me suspiciously, put the Gatorade bottle on the table, and then stepped behind me. Oh God, not the plastic bag, I thought. Instead, I felt her hands dive into my pockets. If only my hands weren't taped, I thought, this would be my chance. She dumped the contents of my pockets onto the carpet. Then she did the same for LaFranc. I tried not to look worried as she examined the pile. She started with a sheet of paper from LaFranc's pocket. My heart sank. It was one of his diagrams. I could see her looking at her name in a circle, with a line to Mashinsky, Sleeth, and Ravinsky. I could see the Gibraltar bank account details written on the back, as well as lists of phone numbers. She flipped the page over and gasped. God damn it, McGregor, she said angrily. You can't ever just leave something alone! She threw the paper back down on the floor. Then she stepped forward 
and checked that the tape on my wrists and ankles was solid. Then she sat down against the wall and pulled her knees up under her chin. She had the Gatorade bottle in her hand once more. She stared silently at her shoes for a minute, frowning and rolling the Gatorade bottle back and forth on the carpet. Then she lifted her head. Ian didn't kill Julian, she said. I did. There. I said it. How's that for a confession? I just stared at her. I was amazed. She went on. I couldn't let my commando boyfriend do all the killing, could I? She laughed, in a worrying kind of way. Lefranc snored. The air vent in the ceiling where the microphone was hidden caught my eye. It was broadcasting, but the base unit in our suite wasn't turned on. Violet had twisted her ankle as many miles away as Ian Culloden could run in 40 minutes. I was alone. I was also just plain amazed. Did Culloden ask you to kill Julian? I asked. Of course not, she said. He didn't even care about the little twerp. Neither did I, until Beto started to like him and involve him in all the Westcan oil deal meetings. Julian was sticking his nose into all the files, not to mention asking questions about Ian all over Brussels. I had to be the lead in Brussels without anyone looking over my shoulder. This was the deal for the Europeans to accept our oil, and for us to extend pharmaceutical patents, and to forget about the rest of Candu Canada? I asked. Yes, she replied, and Julian was a menace. Ian and I decided the best way to get rid of him was to sneak into his flat, steal the duty officer's briefcase, and then leak some classified messages. It was genius, because it would make Julian look unreliable to Beto, and totally embarrass everyone involved in the Westcan deal. I was puzzled. Why did you want to embarrass a Canadian oil deal? She laughed, and unscrewed the lid off the Gatorade bottle. You still don't get it, do you? Because Maxime Mashinsky was paying us a king's ransom to wreck Candu Canada, and embarrass Canada so badly it would be easy for Frittle to block Westcan's oil deal. With Canadian oil off the table, she said, Mashinsky's Russian oil would have a much easier time getting approved. And the money, I asked, immediately regretting that I might have distracted her from the Gatorade. Well, she admitted, screwing the top back onto the Gatorade bottle as she continued with her story, with that much cash, Ian and I would never have to think about money again. Whatever I did for work would just be for fun. I remembered, with a sick feeling, Julian's joke that you shouldn't take up the Foreign Service hobby unless you already had $5 million in marketable securities. But Mashinsky was working with Canada to get Antwerp open to Canadian as well as Russian tankers, I said. That's what the Canadians thought, replied Kennedy. Really, he wanted Candu Canada to blow up spectacularly and make it politically impossible for Canadian oil sands oil to get approved. But Sleeth is bribing Sir William Friddle through his old friend Nigel Merton, I replied. That's the part Mashinsky enjoyed the most about the whole deal, she said. He thought it was hilarious. The Canadians would pay half the bribe for Sir William Friddle, even though Friddle would never end up approving any Canadian oil. She seemed to be relaxing a bit. She paced the room slowly as she spoke. Occasionally, she checked her watch for Culloden's return, or flipped the Gatorade bottle from one hand to the other. Both habits that made my pulse race. The other thing Mashinsky loved, she said, was that Sleeth thought he was really bribing Friddle. In reality, Nigel Merton was making sure Friddle only heard the worst about the Canadian proposal. Mashinsky thought it was a laugh riot that the Canadians were providing the money to bribe people to approve Russian oil. But only half the money was up front, I said remembering what I'd overheard while eavesdropping their dinner at La Reine d'Afrique. The rest only came when the Canadian import permits were actually approved. Kennedy looked at me. Even half of a large amount of money is still a lot of money, she said. And Merton was going to tell them that everything was going fine, but that Friddle got nervous after Can Do Canada blew up. This was even more baffling. 
Why did Mashinsky go to all this trouble with Sleeth and Westcan? Why not just bribe Friddle or Merton or whomever needed to be bribed? Mashinsky said it was like chess, she went on. I always think two moves ahead. He knew Sleeth and Westcan would try something, so he thought it would be better to know what they were doing and to seem to help them. He found out exactly how much Sleeth and Westcan were offering. Then he told Merton he'd match whatever Sleeth paid, plus a bonus. I had to admire Mashinsky's scheme. It had so many layers, it reminded me of a John le Carre novel. So Sleeth, I said, was bribing a guy who was actually going to help the Russians, not the Canadians. I was still trying to think through the logic. Exactly, she said. Mashinsky was really afraid that Westcan would go around him somehow and do something he didn't know about. So he put a lot of time into making friends with Calgary. Then, on the side, he had Ian and me working to wreck Can-Do Canada. That way, when Nigel finally told Sleeth that Friddle couldn't stop the commission from naming our oil as ultra-high carbon and blocking the deal, he could use the Can-Do Canada disaster as an excuse. I marveled for a moment at the intricate beauty of Mashinsky's scheme. And why, I asked, did you ask for more money to bribe Culloden right at the end? Kennedy laughed. Mashinsky improvised that. He laughed and laughed afterwards that Pravinsky and Beto wanted me to help him bribe Ian. The three of us went for dinner at this little pizza place and had a good laugh. I watched as Kennedy fiddled with the Gatorade bottle again. Why didn't she just drink it? If Kennedy wasn't unconscious in time for me to escape before Culloden got back, very bad things were likely to happen. Kennedy also seemed to be thinking about something. She flipped the bottle into the air, but this time fumbled the catch. I watched in horror as my last toe bounced off her fingertips, hit her foot, and rolled away under the bed. The Tar Sands Diplomat Chapter 33 Drink the Bloody Gatorade Kennedy must have seen me flinch when the bottle of Gatorade rolled under the bed. Worried about the carpet? She asked sarcastically. Gotta stay hydrated, I said. Are you a sports expert now? She asked, mockingly. I heard you guys mostly drank beer in the diplomatic hockey league. Unless the Russians brought vodka, I replied, trying not to appear too concerned about the Gatorade. Inwardly, my hopes sagged. How likely was it that Kennedy and her spandex outfit would squirm under a hotel bed to get a half-full bottle of Gatorade? I sat silently, saying my prayers, as Kennedy kneeled and lifted the bedspread. If I hadn't been taped to a chair, I would have jumped into the air when I saw the bottle had hit one of the legs and was an easy reach. Kennedy picked it up. Well, I said, you and Culloden were perfect for Mashinsky, hoping to change the subject. One controlled a green group, the other was inside the Canadian mission, and you communicated by burner phone and Gmail on laptops. I nodded at her necklace, with encrypted emails. She nodded, snapping a small memory stick out of her necklace. Pretty good privacy, as they say. Ian and Mashinsky are both paranoid about laptops and encryption keys. Ian sleeps with his laptop, like those WikiLeaks people, and never lets his necklace out of his sight. And anyone involved in Can-Do Canada just walked into the trap, I said. The asbestos and canola people had no idea that the Prime Minister's office wanted to sell them out to help West Can Energy, or that someone at the Canadian mission was actively working to sabotage their trade mission. Exactly, said Kennedy. And Can-Do Canada blew up exactly like we planned it to. I told Ian what was going to happen, and he was always in the right place at the right time. Plus, I said, you could blame me. Yes, she admitted. You were causing a lot of trouble with Sherlock. And you let me position myself as the skeptic about intelligence division when they sent that warning, I said. Then you had something you could blame me for. She began pacing, obviously waiting for Ian Culloden to return. Why bitcoins, I asked, trying to keep the conversation going. Mashinsky thinks they're more secret than shell companies. 
but what can you spend bitcoins on? That's exactly what I asked, she replied. But I have to admit that it works really well. One morning you just wake up and there are some credits in your account from somewhere. But what if the whole bitcoin concept turns out to be a fraud, I asked. That's why I had the account in Gibraltar, she replied, adding that Mashinsky told her to only use bitcoins for payments in order to keep the transaction secret. After the money was received, it was smarter to convert some of your bitcoins to cash or gold and store it in a Gibraltar account. Then, she added, you just have to have a second credit card linked to the account for spending money. Suddenly, it struck me. When Lafranc and I burgled her flat, we found boarding passes showing she'd flown to Malaga two weeks before the dinner at La Renda Frique. But when we found the papers for the Gibraltar bank account, we assumed it's something she'd done after the dinner, where she'd been asked to help with Mashinsky's plot to bribe Culloden. I kicked myself. How could we have missed something that obvious? I felt the knot in my stomach tighten further. But I still don't understand, I said. Why did Julian have to be killed? That was a mistake, she replied grimly. I got the key to Julian's flat from housing. They're always having three-hour lunches. Then I made sure he was at the stagiaire party with Cornelia, but he got ill and came home early. I was in his living room looking at that stupid Inuit statue when he walked up behind me. I was totally surprised, and he freaked out about me and Ian being in his flat. He pulled out his phone to snap a picture of us. I just panicked and smashed him, she said, making a disturbing chopping motion with the Gatorade bottle. He went down hard, hit the coffee table, and thrashed around having all these spasms. I was appalled. Death throes, I said with a cough, as they used to say. Yes, she said. Ian was horrified. I went to pieces. I don't know what I would have done without Ian. He stripped Julian's clothes, rumpled the bed, and went out and bought all those disgusting magazines. We didn't have the password for Julian's computer, so Ian went home and printed out those pages from the Brussels Escort website. I thought I would go crazy as I waited in the apartment. She shuddered at the memory and explained that was why they stole Julian's computer. They didn't want anyone finding out he didn't surf pornography. She recounted how they wore gloves to avoid leaving fingerprints, but forgot to put Julian's on the magazines. Good thing Sherlock didn't notice, she went on. Maxime was pissed that the Brussels escort website ended up being Russian prostitutes. He thought it drew attention. But they were just some random website Ian picked. So, I said, was there anything at all in the duty officer's briefcase? Nothing, she replied. I just filled it with cans of baked beans, then tossed it into a pond in Excel. I got some C5 emails at the mission that Julian would have had access to, and leaked those from the fax downstairs. I figured if anyone saw the transmission... They would think it was just routine embassy press releases. I didn't want to scan them and create disk images and then use my own computer's IP address to create a new Gmail account and send from there. Then we got the briefing notes that Julian would have had and added some incriminating stuff at the bottom. Ian faxed them to himself twice to make them look more like leaks. I thought about asking her why she faxed the leak from the fax machine in the embassy to Belgium downstairs instead of from an anonymous hotel business center, or why someone, presumably Kennedy, had called the Green Alliance from the mission's conference room during Candu Canada. But I didn't say anything. It didn't seem like a good idea to remind her that she ran a sloppier conspiracy than Culloden or her Russian friends. Did you somehow arrange, I asked, for Sherlock to be assigned to the file? No, she said. But at first I thought Sherlock's arrival was a godsend, since he did whatever I told him. But then he started listening to you. I had to put up as many smoke screens as I could. I leaked more messages to the papers back home, I called a friend in intelligence division and got them all excited about eco-terrorists. That wasn't hard. They love eco-terrorists. It was all part of our plan to keep Ottawa off balance. Ian called it psychological operations. She unscrewed the lid off the Gatorade bottle and lifted it to her lips. I looked away, scrutinizing the faux Dutch master prints on the wall. Then she lowered the bottle and looked at it. 
Do you know how much salt and sugar is in this stuff? She asked. I watched dumbfounded as she walked over to the mini bar and grabbed a bottle of water. What could I say? I heard the words, bottled water is bad for the environment, come out of my mouth. Kennedy turned to me with a start. When did you join the Green Alliance? She laughed. I tried to change the subject. Why were you so worried about Julian being the superstar? I asked. Everyone respects you, even with a posting somewhat overshadowed by Julian. You're a director in a couple of years, then a director general and so on. She shook her head. I looked at the people ten years ahead of me, stuck as directors of meaningless divisions. All my friends outside the department are upwardly mobile, like that cow Violet you like so much. I'm starting to meet people five years younger than me who have better jobs. She rattled off a list of investment banks and elite consultancies. Not just better jobs, she went on, better futures. I didn't want to sit around and become a sad female version of you, just with more cats. I nodded. Fair enough. How long have you been seeing Culloden? A year, she replied. It's been great. This was supposed to be our weekend away together, to celebrate the Gibraltar bank accounts and Machinsky's latest installment. I already have more cash than I ever dreamed of before. And what do you plan to do now? I said. You can't just kill Lefranc and me. You could let us go. Lefranc didn't hear anything. And now that I've heard this, I'm horrified. I don't want to tell anyone. It's just unspeakably sad. Let me promise to take it to my grave. I realized immediately that, even allowing for the stress of the moment, this was a poor choice of words. Fortunately, she didn't seem to pick up on it. It would just be your word against mine, she mused. But you wouldn't tell. And if it came out that a foreign service officer had murdered another one, and West Kent Energy and the Prime Minister's office were involved, it would wreck the department. She was silent for a moment, then continued. I probably believe you, but I know I shouldn't. Her eyes flashed again. Why did you have to get involved in this, McGregor? Why couldn't you just go with the flow for once? You've wrecked everything. She stepped forward and unleashed a vicious taekwondo kick at my chest. The pain reminded me once again about the time the U.S. ambassador's bodyguard body-checked me into the penalty box at the Luzhniki Ice Palace in Moscow. I toppled over backwards and crashed painfully onto the marble floor in the bathroom. I felt the chair splinter underneath me. I lay on the floor, gasping, splinters of wood digging into my arms. Kennedy sat down on the carpet against the wall. She pulled her knees up again. We'll wait for Ian. He'll know what to do. I just wish he wouldn't go on these 20k runs. She walked over to the comfy chair, sat down, and turned on CNN. She opened the bottle of water, poured half of it into the Gatorade. Kennedy stared silently at CNN's cricket coverage, while I stared silently at the Gatorade bottle. She lifted the water bottle and tossed it into the trash. Then she chugged the Gatorade. I tried not to watch her. In the background, CNN droned on about the upcoming India-Pakistan match. I could hear her breathing slow down. Her head lolled to one side. Then she was asleep. I prayed it was from the jet lag drug and not CNN. I knew I might only have minutes before Culloden returned. I put all my strength into pushing against the chair. It cracked again, and I felt my right arm come free. I looked over at Kennedy, but she didn't move. I quickly untaped myself. Then I taped Kennedy's arms and legs together. I untaped Lefranc and dragged him out to the patio door. It was already dark, with just enough light to see the path from the parking lot lights 50 yards away. I dragged Lefranc back to our suite. I did the same for the broken chair. I put Kennedy's golf club back in her bag and threw the Gatorade over the hedge. I wasn't sure what my plan was, but I knew it would be better if it looked like Kennedy had left voluntarily rather than being drugged and kidnapped. I found her car keys and dragged her to the edge of the parking lot. I waited in the dark, hearing only the sound of my breathing and Kennedy's. I clicked the trunk button until I saw her car light up. I wrestled her into the trunk, then ran back. 
I entered the room cautiously in case Culloden had returned. I zipped up her suitcase, grabbed her golf clubs, and took them to the car. I was about to start the engine when I saw a figure running towards me. I slid down in the driver's seat, just enough to see Culloden jogging back along the edge of the car park. He would be looking forward to seeing Kennedy, undoubtedly. I started the car and pulled onto the road. I hadn't gone more than five minutes when a phone rang beside me. I almost drove off the road in alarm. I pulled over and found the phone in the console. It was Kennedy's. It was flashing and said Ian on the screen. I stepped out of the car and threw it into the canal. Then I pulled my phone out of my pocket, yanked out the battery, and threw it in the trunk. Whatever I was doing, I didn't need to leave a path with a cell phone company. I followed the canal. I considered my situation. It was appalling. I had a drugged colleague in my trunk. She'd confessed to murdering Julian and to orchestrating a conspiracy that went right up to the Prime Minister's office. But no one would believe me. I was driving her car. Her ex-commando boyfriend was probably in the process of calling the police, or even worse, some ex-Special Forces friends of his. I had nothing with me, except a few euros. The car was empty except for golf clubs, a suitcase full of women's underwear, and a bike rack and some bike locks. I came to an intersection. The sign said the chateau was back to my right. Kanaka Heist and the old Breskin's Pocket were to my left. I'd been on this road before with Elizabeth, on what she described as our romantic historical bunker tour. I paused at the stop sign, my lights illuminating the arrows pointing left and right. There was no traffic. What should I do? Then it came to me. The bike locks in my trunk triggered a memory, a story I'd heard when posted in Moscow, the kind of story you only hear in Moscow, come to think of it. I turned away from the chateau. I knew which way to go. About 20 minutes later, I found what I was looking for. I pulled into a deserted picnic area near the dunes. For Europe, I was in a remarkably deserted area. The nearest farmhouse lights were several miles in the distance. The North Sea wind blew noisily overhead, and the waves crashed just out of sight. I listened at the trunk for a moment and opened it cautiously, in case Kennedy had woken up. Then I grabbed the flashlight from the emergency kit, put the bike locks around my neck, and lifted Kennedy over my shoulder. I staggered along the sandy path in the moonlight. It was about a quarter mile until I found the bunker I was looking for. I carried Kennedy inside, then turned on my flashlight. I continued down two flights of stairs. I could hear water dripping and rats scuttling in the darkness. I found the bunker's old ammunition storage room. I propped the flashlight against a wall and dragged Kennedy into the room. I ripped the packaging off a bike lock and removed the sticker with the combination. I opened the lock and stretched out the cable. Then I took one end and passed it around a sturdy piece of rebar sticking out of the concrete and locked it in place. I held the eye at the cable's loose end and passed the second cable through it. Then, as it had been described to me in Moscow, I wrapped the second cable around Kennedy's neck. Not tight enough to strangle her, but tight enough that she wouldn't be able to get it over her head. I tilted Kennedy's head and clicked the second lock into place under her ear. I wiped my fingerprints off the locks and cables with my handkerchief. Suddenly, Kennedy twitched. I leaped backwards in alarm and stumbled over a broken piece of concrete. Perhaps it was the click of the lock, or maybe she'd drunk less Gatorade than I thought. I watched her as she moaned and sat up. She looked confused, as one might expect from the jet lag pills and eerie bunker atmosphere. Her hands were still taped together, but her feet had come loose. She tried to stand up, but the cable tightened. She turned her head and slowly focused on the cable. I saw her eyes follow it to the lock on the wall. Her hands rose quickly to her neck, and she felt the cable around it. She turned, finally noticing me sitting on the bunker floor a few feet away. What the? She gasped, pulling at the bike lock around her neck. 
You remember that bike lock story I told you from Moscow? I asked softly. Her eyes filled with pure terror. Thanks for listening to episode 26 of The Tar Sands Diplomat. There's just one episode left, so make sure you check your iTunes feed next week for the concluding episode of The Tar Sands Diplomat. 